0: yeah.
2: episode 34 of the 30 years war is brought to you by sharp mind media sharp mind media is an exciting new venture launched by myself and my wife and if you'd like to learn more about that stay tuned till later on in the episode otherwise enjoy this latest episode of the 30 years war Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all to the Thirty Years' War. Last time, we introduced the third section of this series, really, with an examination of Christian IV of Denmark and his decision to intervene in the Thirty Years' War after so many years of nearly doing so. Christian's decision, as we established, was made due to a culmination of several factors, one of the most important being that for a time, it seemed... It seemed that he had dependable allies at long last, allies that he could rely on to support him militarily and financially in the war that was to come. Throughout 1625, the English, Dutch and Danes rallied to one another's side, but even with the signing of the Hague Alliance in December of 1625, cracks had already begun to appear. The disastrous initiative of the Anglo-Dutch to strike at Spain in November 1625 took much of the wind out of their collective sails. While the Dutch knuckled down to defend against the Spanish, the English desperately sought to absolve themselves of the hefty financial commitments which had been made to the Danish King. Subsidies which the new King of Britain, King Charles, knew full well that he could not afford. Into this situation, the Danish King still marched. The alliance was still ratified, and the Imperials were still very much afraid of what was coming their way. So fearful, in fact, that Emperor Ferdinand felt compelled to enlist the services of a brand new actor in the conflict, Albrecht of Wallenstein. In this episode, we receive our proper introduction to this remarkable figure, and we examine the troubling context in which his appointment was decided upon and received. Without any further ado then, I'll now take you to the Habsburg camp. A satire on the ineffectiveness of the Hague Alliance was doing the rounds even before that alliance had had the chance to prove itself. In a similar theme to the earlier satire on the aid which the Elector Palatine had received during his campaign for support, this latest satire declared that the King of Denmark would receive the following in his fight against the Emperor. England sends 1,000 tobacco pipes and four pairs of comedians, Savoy sends 100 hecklers and 20 mouse traps. Norway sends 30 loads of fish. Switzerland sends 1,000 nubile milkmaids. Holland sends 50 sacks of pepper it captured in the West Indies. Venice sends 100 loads of soap and 400 wine glasses. From Lapland are coming 15 magicians who can make a good wind and fog to confuse their enemies when they need to escape. Finland sends 200 reindeer so they can make a quick getaway. Greenland sends 100 seals so they've something to smear on the boots when they've eaten all the bacon. The Muscovites send 1,000 white fox pelts. From France, 10 Huguenots from La Rochelle to teach them how to be disloyal and rebel against the authorities. Bethlen Gabor of Transylvania sends two dozen letters he's exchanged with the Turks and the Elector Palatines, former confederation, about how to betray Germany. The list continued in this tone with increasingly useless pieces of aid offered up, as the king of Denmark's limited options and feckless friends are made abundantly clear. Finally, the ultimate condescending offer of help. It was noted that the emperor sends two guides, Prince Wallenstein and Count Tilly, who can show him, that is, the king of Denmark, the way back to Denmark. The satire was somewhat unfair, because Christian had been led to believe that his allies would help him, and he had acted accordingly, as any ally could reasonably be expected to do. The satire was also inaccurate, since, far from unthreatening or innocuous, King Christian IV of Denmark represented the most glaring danger which the Emperor had yet faced. The danger was felt all the more severely because the commander of the Catholic League, Count Tilly, did not seem to be up to the task of meeting and defeating Christian's forces on the field. Thus, the cutting reference to Tilly and Wallenstein as guides to lead Christian back to Denmark belied the fact that Emperor Ferdinand and his allies felt themselves to be vulnerable. Wallenstein wasn't hired merely as a guide. He was recruited and promised the moon in return for rescuing the Emperor. His appointment was unconventional, probably unconstitutional and, in time, highly controversial. But neither the Emperor nor his Bavarian ally Maximilian... ...felt they had any other choice. Despite the effective defeat of the Palatine cause... ...at the Battle of Statlon in August 1623... ...Frederick's allies limped on... ...and the dispossessed elector never consented to any peace... ...short of unconditional restoration. This resistance, frustrating and maddening though it may have been... ...to the likes of Maximilian of Bavaria... ...who wanted to secure his ill-gotten gains and electoral title at Frederick's expense or King Philip IV of Spain, who wanted to unite his dynasty against the Dutch and perhaps the French, well, this resistance also proved essential for keeping the root cause of the war alive. Even while his generalissimos fielded no soldiers, his diplomats continued to work for Frederick in London and the Hague, where Dutch and English aid was repeatedly sought. By 1624, as Frederick's ambassador attempted to wrest some concession, from the assembled Parliament in London, the news of the collapsing Anglo-Spanish match complicated matters for the Emperor, because this meant that his Spanish cousins would not be able to restrain Frederick. The Emperor had further cause for concern closer to home, as rumours of a new Bohemian insurrection, though false in the end, were nonetheless unsettling, as were the constant reports of Bethlen Gabor's latest campaign into Hungary. Although Bohemia had been sucked dry and remained and the Prince of Transylvania didn't march, Emperor Ferdinand remained fearful of a coalition from outside the empire. If the emperor was fearful, Maximilian of Bavaria was nearing a crisis. He tried to seek a reproach with the French and some of his Capuchin advisors advocated a new international Catholic League which would pacify Europe and rally against the Turk Yet Maximilian found more success in playing to the equally skittish Elector of Saxony, John George, who initially had greeted Maximilian's approaches with a distinct coolness. Wary of the unconstitutionality of the Duke of Bavaria's actions, actions which had turned him from a Duke into an Elector, John George had clung to the idea of some form of middle ground emerging in the conflict, and although he remained loyal to the Emperor, he wouldn't provide the recognition of Maximilian's new titles just yet. The Elector of Mines was set to meet with John George in July 1624. During the course of the meeting, he revealed the cache of newly published documents relating to Frederick's brazen activities while acting as King of Bohemia. The full extent of Frederick's treacherous correspondence, including his negotiations with the Turks, were placed before the sensitive Elector of Saxony, who was won over in this way to the Bavarian side, at least for now. Going further, the Elector of Mines insisted to John George that the King of Spain stood behind the Emperor and the new Bavarian Elector, and that the cause was a just one, launched to liberate Germany from war and ruin. Finally, it was insisted that only John George had the power to fulfil the dream of a proper lasting peace, since only with an agreement between the Bavarian and Saxon rulers could Germany ever be secure. This certainly appealed to John George's sense of importance but it also struck a constitutional chord as well, since it hinted that a third party, one aside from either the Habsburg or the French influence, would win Germany the settlement it required. For the moment at least, Maximilian's approaches had done the trick, and the elector of Saxony continued to tether himself to Ferdinand's cause. John George's electoral brother to the north-east in Brandenburg had not seen matters the same way though. George William of Brandenburg moved closer to his familial bonds rather than to his constitutional obligations and he made an alliance with the Dutch on the 23rd of October 1624. This agreement between the Dutch and Brandenburg was the final in a series of agreements knitted together by the French and enthusiastically encouraged by both The Hague and Frederick alike. In June 1624, the French and Dutch had solidified their friendship with the Treaty of Compiègne, which England joined shortly after. On the 9th of July, Sweden and Denmark came to their own terms, which freed both parties up for conflict with the Poles and the Holy Roman Emperor, respectively. On the 11th of July, this still in 1624, yes, a lot seemed to happen in this year, all right, the French secured the alliance of the Venetians and the Savoyards for cooperation in the Val and if you've forgotten, understandable if you have, the Valtelline were those critical Alpine passes through which so many Spanish goods, money and men passed. To cap the year off, on the 10th of November 1624, the Prince of Wales and Princess of France were married in person, and Henrietta Maria, the sister of the King of France, became the Queen of Britain. Through all these agreements, the net appeared to be closing in on Emperor Ferdinand and the allies upon whom he depended. For all the warning signals 1624 sent to Vienna though, 1625 was to set off alarm bells so deafening that all appeared to be lost. Albrecht of Wallenstein had spent the winter of 1624-25 in Vienna, petitioning for the big break which would eventually make him famous. Initially, he requested that the Spanish ambassador help him gain approval for command in North Italy, but when the Valtelline fell to a joint effort of French, Savoyard and Swiss troops, Wallenstein changed his target, but not his ambition. Emperor Ferdinand received Wallenstein's offer, and it was an incredible one. One which the Austrian Habsburg dynasty had never heard before and likely would not hear again. He offered to raise 50,000 men on his own expense, a deed which the emperor would repay directly through him, through loans, lands or titles during the course of his command. The offer was not as brazen as it may have appeared. Wallenstein had experience in dealing with Ferdinand, and especially in lending him aid. But who was this Germanized Czech nobleman, Wallenstein? Tall of stature, slender, lean and almost perpetually melancholic, Wallenstein was, as Peter H. Wilson perceived, a hard man to like. Even his friends attested to his unsmiling face and cold, staring eyes, while his general politeness and humour when it came to his martial duties could be contrasted with his propensity for violent outbursts, which grew more frequent as he aged. He had been born to Protestant Bohemian parents in 1583, and he attempted to enter service in the Habsburg army during the Long Turkish War. A bout of malaria endured during his service in 1605 seems to have inflicted lasting wounds on his health and his psyche, and by 1620, then in his late thirties, and in spite of his meagre drinking habits and healthy eating regimen, the unfortunate Wallenstein was suffering from gout. In 1606, with a tour of Italy under his belt, the suitably impressed Wallenstein had determined to convert to the old Catholic faith, and for the rest of his life he remained a convinced, committed Catholic, although not necessarily intolerant. This would become important later. Shortly afterwards, Wallenstein married a wealthy, elderly noblewoman from Moravia, and upon her death he inherited her estates. A contemporary French pamphlet would judge his shifting personality by opining that he was Very liberal, and when he gave presents, he very much rejoiced, and indeed was a man who gave the most to him who least expected it, but his gifts were golden snares which indissolubly obliged. By 1618, on the eve of the Bohemian Revolt, Wallenstein was a figure of minor importance in Bohemia, but it was this very revolt that ultimately transformed his life, starting with his fortune. The collapse of the Kingdom of Bohemia into revolt, and the subsequent crushing of this revolt by the Habsburgs provided first a great cause for fear, and then a terrific opportunity for the opportunistic. Land was cheap and in plentiful supply, having been confiscated on a vast scale from rebels, the dead, the exiled, or just the inconvenient. Furthermore, and perhaps most importantly for Wallenstein's interests, the Emperor was selling, and he was hard-pressed for cash, during this period, as the historian and really the main biographer of Wallenstein, Jeff Mortimer explained, Cash was key. The emperor urgently needed it, and raising it was the main objective of the confiscations and property sales in Bohemia. For would be purchasers, this was a considerable difficulty, as it was one thing to be wealthy in terms of land, but another to have large amounts of ready cash available. Wallenstein was far from alone in facing this problem but he was uniquely successful in solving it. How did he solve it? Well, Wallenstein recognised that since the Emperor provided the honours, signed off on the deeds and granted legitimacy to all deals, it was the Emperor that he should pledge his loyalty to. With this accepted, it did not necessarily matter to Wallenstein that Ferdinand was unable, at this moment, to pay him back for whatever money he lent him. Thanks to the security of his estates in Moravia, Wallenstein was able to raise loans from creditors and bankers for millions of Gulden, the currency used in the south of Germany. And with this money loaned, the Emperor would then be in his debt by raising Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during
1: inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Using additional loans, Wallenstein was able not just to loan money to the emperor, he was also able to purchase more land at knockdown prices and use the security of these new lands to raise additional loans. Although this pattern is complex and detailed in the voluminous correspondence between Wallenstein, his creditors, his extended family and the emperor, it all boiled down to Wallenstein's ability to raise cash loans based on his extensive land holdings, forward this money to the emperor and then pay off his debts with the income from his lands. Between 1619-23, to 23, he had already loaned the emperor a whopping 1.6 million florins and with Wallenstein's money and Maximilian of Bavaria's army, Ferdinand had crushed his enemies. But there always seemed to be more enemies on the horizon, thus more need for loans, thus more debt for Ferdinand to accumulate. Wallenstein's wealth was such that he was able to pay off the interest on his loans, and his stellar record in repaying meant that he was able to acquire a line of credit with relative ease, This left Wallenstein, occasionally, at least, debt-free. But this process was a constant fixture of Wallenstein's life. It also left him with additional opportunities to get in the Emperor's good graces. If Wallenstein could acquire a reputation as a reliable and able lender for Vienna, then the Emperor's debt to him would only increase. In time, the sums would grow to such an extent that Ferdinand was forced to pay them back in the only way he knew how. In a similar pattern to that adopted with Maximilian of Bavaria, Ferdinand would pay off his debts to Wallenstein by providing land. Through this process the Duke of Bavaria became an elector, as we've already seen, and Albrecht of Wallenstein, that minor Czech nobleman, became the Duke of Friedland and the Duke of Mecklenburg. These opportunities were to come in time, but by 1624, Wallenstein already owned lands equal in size to the counties of Kent and Surrey combined, or about half the size of Massachusetts for those of you Americans listening in. From just north of Prague to the Bohemian border, 2,000 square miles of productive, unified lands were his. He added to the size of this private empire by selling distant lands, buying up neighbouring estates, and making it more formidable by consistently investing in its improvement. This land was the basis of Wallenstein's power, and throughout his life, he excelled or declined based on its prosperity. As Jeff Mortimer continues, Wallenstein must have had not only tremendous personal energy and commitment, but also agents upon whom he could rely, particularly as he still had his military duties to attend to. Still more important was the availability of financial backers, ready to assist him in putting up the necessary money. These military duties that we haven't touched on yet form the more famous part of Wallenstein's character. He was not only a fabulously wealthy landowner and the Emperor's favourite loan shark, he was also to become the Habsburg's Generalissimo, thus granting Ferdinand power and supremacy over all the Empire in Wallenstein's hands. Much like his earlier dealings with the Emperor, Wallenstein ensured that he took full advantage of whatever arrangements were made with Vienna. Thus, his offer to harness the power of his lands, to raise 50,000 men in the Emperor's name and to fight solely in Ferdinand's interest, was in reality an offer to lend his military services to Ferdinand, a loan which, much like the others, the Emperor would be expected to pay back. Wallenstein's financial services and loyalty had already been repaid in 1624, as Ferdinand tapped into his fount of honours to name Wallenstein the Duke of Friedland. That united clump of territory, larger than most principalities in the empire, was designated the Duchy of Friedland. as a result. Wallenstein had thus become the most important landowner in Bohemia by 1624, with powers equalled only by some electors. This was before Wallenstein had even led men against Ferdinand's enemies. Wallenstein's tactically constructed power base was now blessed by the Emperor, making it still more significant and important. Master of his estates, Wallenstein ruled over them as something akin to judge, jury and executioner. His landholdings and loans to the Emperor had placed Wallenstein in a remarkable position by spring 1625, and it is significant that Wallenstein's wealth meant that he did not need to concern himself with Ferdinand's shaky record of paying back his creditors. The immediate challenge for Wallenstein was not repayment of Ferdinand's debts, but to make himself so indispensable to the Emperor in the military sphere that the Habsburgs could not endure without him, just as he had done with his efforts in the financial sphere. In short, getting the Emperor to accept his offer was only half the battle, above all he would need to prove himself. Before we talk about Wallenstein's efforts to prove himself, I want to let you guys know of a pretty exciting venture that myself and Anna have, well, started up in the last few weeks. If you weren't aware, it's lockdown season in Ireland at the moment and has been since really just before Christmas. So those of us with no opportunity to go outside our house and see what the world is offering us have turned to other ventures. Case in point, myself and Anna have set up this new business called Sharp Mind Media. What is Sharp Mind Media? To put it simply, it's a self-publishing business. And our whole mantra with sharp mind media really is to make screen free entertainment in a screen filled world that's literally our motto when doing this whole thing because it's nice sometimes to have a break from screens i don't know about you but i'm surrounded by screens so far we've published numerous sudoku books and some coloring books but we also intend to publish in the future Cryptograms, word searches, trivia books, more activity books, everything for children, for adults and everything in between. If you like these types of things, and believe it or not there's quite a large market out there for those that like Sudoku books, and I only just learned how to play Sudoku and it is quite enjoyable, but if you're interested in these things, check out Sharp Mind Media. This is myself and Anna's way to kind of put another string in our bow and we are really, really excited about it. So if you'd like to check that out and if you'd like to support us, Just click on the link in the description below. You'll be brought to Amazon where those books are and you can decide if you'd like to get one for yourself. I've got huge plans for Sharp Mind Media. I also have some huge plans for this podcast and some other little private projects I'm doing. I'll be sure to keep you guys updated with these as things develop. But for now, Sharp Mind Media should be your place to go if you want Sudoku books, colouring books, activity books, cryptograms, word searches, etc, etc. Thanks so much for allowing me to impose upon you with Sharp Mind Media, guys. I know it's not strictly related to history, but hey, this is my podcast and I do what I want. Hopefully after that immature display, you still want to continue listening. If so, let's get back to Wallenstein. With some service in the army, Wallenstein's interest in leading Ferdinand's forces had not come from nowhere. Indeed, in June 1623, Wallenstein had been appointed Major General and instructed to fight against the forces led by Bethlen Gabor. However, this minor rank and the very inconsistent nature of the Prince of Transylvania's campaigning was a very far cry from full responsibility for the provision and command of his own army. Again in Spring 1625, as had happened before, Wallenstein's great wealth counted in his favour and he was able to leverage this power to achieve what he desired. The Spanish ambassador in Vienna, the Marquis de Aetona, was a believer in Wallenstein, but what may have swung the balance in his favour was Maximilian of Bavaria's concerted support. In a breathtaking example of self-interest, Maximilian had heard only the rumours of anti-Habsburg mobilisation, and he feared only for the prize he had acquired while serving Ferdinand, and in Wallenstein Maximilian saw the ideal solution. With a second army in the field, the security of what had thus far been gained would be much greater. Maximilian thought none of the costs involved to his emperor or to Germany, and wished in this instance only to preserve his interests through further recourse to arms. Intermittent negotiations with the English and French had produced neither peace nor martial alliances, and on the basis of this failed diplomacy, Maximilian recommended to his emperor that Wallenstein's offer be accepted at once. To Maximilian and to Ferdinand, Wallenstein's offer and the risks it posed were worth taking if it saved their cause from destruction. Ferdinand was also eager to assume some kind of leading stake in the war after delegating and depending upon Maximilian and the Catholic League for so long. Wallenstein gave the Emperor this chance, and if 1625 was the year that the origins of the conflict became lost in its escalation and the threat of foreign intervention, It was also the year that the recruited armies ballooned in size. For Ferdinand to assume leadership of the war's direction, Wallenstein would have to be entitled to recruit an army equal in size to Count Tillys, that Generalissimo of the Catholic League. This was permitted in the spring and summer of 1625, and Wallenstein got to work, while Ferdinand shifted men around from Hungary to North Italy to fill in the gaps, and the Spanish even stopped by to recruit some 10,000 men for the war against the Dutch. The conflict, which had been sparked by Frederick's acceptance of the Bohemian crown, had clearly widened beyond its original regional causes, and while Christian IV of Denmark moved towards his German domains, Tilly was appointed to meet him, while Wallenstein was tasked with meeting Ernst of Mansfeld as the luckless captain descended on Moravia. Both imperial commanders boasted between forty to 50,000 men combined, and this number was destined to steadily increase. Plans for Ernst of Mansfeld, this dream of Frederick's cause and his sympathisers, plans for Mansfeld to link up with Bethlen Gabor were not based on solid foundations, as the Prince of Transylvania once again let down his allies. Wallenstein had recruited 16,000 men to fight with him, and while his force was supplemented by some veterans from Hungary, the overwhelming majority were ill-proven and were marching to their first battle. If Wallenstein depended on these men and they failed him in their first confrontation with Mansfeld in the near future, then the result could be disastrous for his reputation, his career, and potentially his life. Wallenstein had stepped on countless toes on his way to the peak of his wealth and power, and while many of these toes had been attached to exiled rebels or bitter minor nobles, some had the power to strike back at him. The unconventional rise of Wallenstein provoked those aristocrats whom he had eclipsed and led to the formation of all sorts of scandalous rumours. The true source and nature of his wealth, as well as his unnatural spell over the Emperor, made for particular favourites for these mongers. Little thought was given to Wallenstein's actual vulnerability, which was sourced from his near-permanent state of indebtedness. This indebtedness didn't matter, so long as Wallenstein's estates more than paid for themselves. But what would happen if the war reached and then ravaged these estates? as enemy soldiers carried off his precious duchy's contents and thereby deprived him of his assets. Such a nightmare was one which Wallenstein would, in time, have to face, but not for some time yet. From June 1625, Wallenstein recruited in earnest and occupied the town of Halberstadt in November as his forward base. Almost immediately he organised a system of levying contributions from the nearby towns and cities. Through these payments, the inhabitants and city fathers could expect to be left alone. But while paying was preferable to the occupation and sacking which might follow a refusal to pay, these costs were still prohibitive. Nuremberg, one city in Wallenstein's path, paid 440,000 florins throughout the period to Wallenstein's soldiery in return for the promise of being effectively left alone, with minimal quartering and no recruitment of new soldiers on the city's lands. Lengthy quartering of soldiers, that is, having your soldiers stay in a particular region for a particular length of time, could destroy arable land and suck the region dry of resources, while security would also decrease. And if recruitment drives were initiated, some peasants could leave their farms and leave the land denuded of people for the opportunity of a better or more interesting life in the armies. Just as the Hague Alliance was confirmed in December 1625 then, Ferdinand leveraged his position to issue the imperial ban against Christian IV of Denmark. As the Duke of Holstein, Christian, the King of Denmark, was now persona non grata in Germany, and any German potentates that offered him support would suffer the same fate as had Frederick's allies in the years beforehand. It was beneficial for the Emperor in the short term that several princes did not heed his warning. By acting expressly against their overlord, they were liable for punishment in the aftermath. Considering Ferdinand's indebtedness to Wallenstein, there was no better way for the Emperor to kill two birds with one stone than to strip rebellious princes of their land, and then hand these lands over to Wallenstein as payment. Although this inflated Wallenstein's property portfolio and his power base, it also caused the Rumour Mill to work overtime against him. So long as Wallenstein could prove his usefulness, so long as he could defeat the Emperor's enemies, The resentment felt by his aristocratic betters and the suspicions he aroused in Vienna would pale in comparison to his personal glory. As 1626 approached, it was apparent that the King of Denmark and the Emperor's new Generalissimo were bound to clash soon enough. For both men, it was do or die. In the next episode, we'll examine this eventful year as the interests and best laid plans of both sides meet to produce some startling results. I hope you'll join me for that, but until next time, history friends, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 34 of the 30 Years War. Now that rhymes. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show. To all of you out there, I really, really appreciate it. And make sure to check out Sharp Mind Media for all of your non-screen entertainment needs. Thanks so much, and I'll be seeing you all soon.